Hello, everyone, and welcome to At WCSU, the podcast that goes really into everything about Western Connecticut State University. So if you have a question about WestCon, you'll hear about you'll hear the answer here. That's our purpose in life. Yeah, and if you have a question, let us know. Email yeah, us. Please do. Damn it. But. You've been ignoring <laughs> us all this time. And we'll get you an answer. Yes. Uh, today, the question is, how many people show up stoned every day at WestCon? And uh, Sharon Lawler, who's in charge of our program to uh, give drug and alcohol education to students and anyone else who wants it, is here and is going to answer that question along with a bunch of other things about marijuana and other drugs and drinking. And uh, you'll hear she's very entertaining and um, quite uh, has a lot of important information for all of us here who are connected to West Coast. Yeah, the program's called Choices, right? That is right. Yeah. So it's easy to remember, except when I was trying just now. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was great. It was a lot of I- interesting because, yeah, and that's wcsu.edu slash choices, I believe. Let me confirm that. I believe that's true. That is correct. Um, it, it's, it's interesting to hear actual information, actual data, not just kind of what you see in your dorm or what people are saying exactly. they're doing or what you think people are doing or, you know. Um, right. It, it was cool to hear actual data. And as everyone knows, the laws have changed about marijuana in Connecticut. So uh, she brought us up to date on what's uh, legal and what is not and um, how much trouble you get in if you're smoking a joint in your math class. Yeah, because it's, it's tricky because it's legal in the state but not legal on, by the federal laws. There are It's a phased-in thing, so it's legal to have but not legal to grow yet it's not you know you can't get it everywhere it's not you know so it, it it's it is and it isn't it's kind of happening slowly yeah. so and if you're a commuter student it's one thing if you're a living on campus do not grow any plants <laughs> in the bathroom or anything like that yeah so sharon has all your answers for you that's right oh stay tuned for that she's coming up next we're also going to uh we gave the student co-hosts a day off today and Pete and I are going to go through the most important uh, events coming up on campus. By most important you mean the the ones that we picked to talk about? That's right. right. The ones we're interested in talking about. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) And is there anything else we do? No, that's it. I think that's it. Just Sharon and us. Yes. So hold on. Well, Sharon... This new marijuana law has taken effect in Connecticut. You know, you can own or possess one and a half ounces of marijuana, et cetera. So is everybody stoned here on campus? Is that your observation? Well, we can start talking about that in terms of levels of use. Um, One of the things that my office does, because we work from a public health model, is we want to look at what is going on on campus. Because you can't really develop and implement programs that are meaningful to your students if you're not hitting the right target population, if you don't know what's going on in your community. So that's a good question. What is going on on campus? 
We do the core survey. Uh, we did the last one in 2017-18. We're going to be doing another one uh, this March. But the numbers don't look good. Um, we have had a steady increase since 2010. And right now we have about 30, well, exactly 36% of our student population that are 30-day prevalent. So that's they've smoked in the last month. Uh, 50% have um, an annual prevalence. So we've got half of our students that say, yes, I smoked cannabis in the last year. And 36% say, yes, I smoked in the last month. But I think it's important for universities to kind of drill those numbers down. I'm not that concerned about people who said, yes, I smoked once or twice in the past year, uh, even those that smoked once in the last month. But I want to look at what's the distribution of those people that are smoking in 30 days. Are they smoking once on the weekend? Are they smoking every day? So here's our numbers for those reporting 30-day prevalence. The good news is that 64% of our students didn't smoke at all in the last month. We'll talk a little bit about perception, but I think that's a really important number to use because even though we have new laws coming down the pike, people report, oh, I smell weed all over campus or in the residence halls or in the parking garages, we have to understand that 60, excuse me, 64% have not smoked at all in the last 30 days. So as a university campus, we have to uh, applaud those students and support that group of students who choose not to use this substance. About 10% say they've used in one or two days in the past 30 months. Again, not a high frequency. It would be the same as somebody who said, yes, I had a couple of drinks once or twice last month. Um, the, the category that I'm concerned about are those that are smoking 10 or more times a month because that means that you have THC in your system throughout the whole month. You know, if you smoke 10 times a month, that's, let's say, once every three days, 30-day month, that THC stays in your system, and it actually um, gets more and more the more you're adding to it. You have some staying in your system. So that's THC about... THC is the active ingredient in marijuana, right? Yes. It makes you high. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. But So that's, that's a significant number. That's mm-hmm. almost 1 in 20%, 1 in 20 um, of our students... Um, are smoking, you know, they have THC in their system every day. That's high risk. That's like I would be concerned about somebody who said, yeah, I drink alcohol. I have four or five drinks every day. That would concern me. So that's that's a little bit of an issue for this university. 20% of our students are pretty much daily smokers. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have data um, that shows that the more cannabis you're smoking, the lower your GPA um, so when we talk about, like, the importance of the context, like, that would matter to students. Mm-hmm. If I came out and said to them, you know what, if you're smoking weed every single day or um, multiple times a day or five times a week, your, your chances of a lower GPA are certainly higher than somebody who's using at a social level. Um, and we could even back up and go back to, you know, do we think that people can smoke cannabis socially? Um, and... The law is certainly saying that. Um, and I think it's like alcohol. The vast majority of people that use alcohol, you so, use it socially, don't run into problems. The vast majority of people that smoke cannabis don't run into problems. They're daily smokers. And, you know, do we think that there's a difference between people getting together and watching a Giants game on Sunday and, you know, splitting a six-pack? Or, you know, lighten up a blunt. Is there a difference in that social interaction? Um, 
So you have to get down to drill down to why are people smoking so much cannabis? Um, so an answer to your question, are all our students stoned? A significant proportion, 20%, um, can be considered daily smokers. I definitely hear from faculty that, you know, they'll smell it coming in the classroom or they look up there and they see that there are some students that seem stoned or falling asleep. So it is a problem. It is a problem that needs to be addressed on the college campus. I come at it from a public health standpoint and a retention. How do we get these students to understand that cutting back, delaying use, um, or stopping altogether if you have a substance use disorder, a cannabis use disorder, is something that you could consider to have a successful career here at college. Yeah, because just common sense-wise, it doesn't make... um it doesn't add up. If you're stoned when you're at college, you're not going to do better. Ex- like ex- you said, if you're drunk all the time. Exactly. And it's like a cascading effect. The students that I see, and I'm looking at this over the last five years, is you get students that come in or they're referred to me for a number of reasons. And when we start looking at their cannabis use, um, they'll say, well, I used to only you know, smoke like on the weekends. And then all of a sudden it was both weekend nights. And then I added Wednesday nights. And then it's four nights a week. So there's like this cascading effect. It kind of creeps up on you. So a lot of the work that we do with our students in motivational interviewing is to get them to really realize how much they're using this substance and the tools that we use as well. Um, so that, that, it's a big issue. Mm-hmm. It's a big issue. And are you successful in getting students to realize that, hey, maybe this isn't what I want to be doing? Yes. One, if you can get to students at their level, you have to meet them with where they're at. You know, um, sometimes I get students in and, oh, weed smoking is not a problem, not a problem. So I'm not going to hit them over the head with all this data about, you know, weed smoking and effect on the brain. Instead, um, we use some tools that help create like a dissonance for them. One of them is this e-checkup to go. It's called actually called e-toke. Um, and they have an e-chug for students that are abusing alcohol, for students that are abusing co- um, cannabis. It's e-toke. And they put in the data. So they're putting in how much I smoke, when I smoke, why I smoke, what's the effect, how much do I spend on it, how much of my friends smoke, have I ever gotten in trouble? And then they get the feedback, and that's what we go over. And a lot of times students look and they're like, wow, I spend like 70% of my discretionary income on buying weed. Or, wow, I'm not exercising, or I got kicked off the team, or my grades are dropping, or yeah, I did get in trouble. My parents found weed in my bag, and they took the car away. So there's, you want to have the student look at, okay, where is this causing problems in my life? A lot of times, believe it or not, it's with weight gain. It's with lack of sleep, then they're missing classes. So this tool is meant to kind of kick back to them what their current practices are and what are some changes that you would like to make. That's a big issue, too, though, with students. The reason why people report smoking cannabis has changed drastically over the last two decades. Mm. Our age group, um, when I was in college, if people were smoking weed, they were doing it on a weekend to have fun. If you ask college students in the late 80s, 90s, even the turn of the early 2000s, if you ask them, why do you smoke cannabis? They would say, it's fun, it's enjoyable, I do it with my friends, we do it on the weekends. When you ask those same questions these days, students are reporting, 
It helps me with my anxiety. It helps me sleep. So they've gone to really a self-medicating model versus doing it for fun. And that's an important piece that comes out in the assessment. And that's a place where I can get and say, okay, so you're anxious. Um, as far as I know, THC is not a prescription for an anxiety disorder. As a matter of fact, there could be a rebound effect with that. So a lot of what I'll do with that student is educating them. You've got to get them to understand for themselves and then want to make the change. Um, I think it's, that's really interesting because uh, older people, 50s, 60s, that's why they are uh, smoking it or buying the gummies. Is for, uh, it's self-medicating. You're right, a lot of it. Absolutely. And I'll tell you something interesting. We could talk about the laws. I mean, right now, the state of Connecticut is in the implementation phase. Right. Um, there's three stages to legalizing cannabis. First is campaigns, which we're through. We're passed with the lobbyists and that we have legalized um, the well, medical use has been, but also the adult use, which, by the way, that's interesting. You know, language is important. I was at a conference and they said, stop using the term recreational use versus medical use. Call it adult use. And that's an important thing because if you're saying to young kids, oh, recreational use, what does that sound like? Fun, recreation. So language, language is important there. But I actually went to a dispensary. You're talking about the differences in generations. I went to a dispensary in Massachusetts. I said, okay, I have to know what I'm talking about here. And for somebody who's my age, who grew up in the, you know, when you were hiding it and sneaking in, it was an eye-opener. And I must have gone on a very busy day because I have to tell you, there were probably 35, 40 people waiting in line. And Paul, I'm telling you, probably 60% of the people in that line were people our age. Mm -hmm. I might be older, but our age, 50s, 60s, you know. Very, very interesting. Um, And the other thing I hear from students as well is um, their parents would rather have them smoke weed, smoke cannabis, than drink alcohol, particularly Mm. in high school. And I think this gets at parents kind of think, well, it's it's not the weed that we were smoking in the 70s and 80s, you know, that had 2% THC. THC is now 10, the THC content in cannabis today is between seven and ten times what people were smoking in the 70s and 80s. The other thing is age of initiation, age of first use. And in Connecticut, and I do this when I do programs for students, I say, what do you think the average age in Connecticut is that somebody starts smoking uh, cannabis? It's 12 and a half. Oh. It's been coming down and down and down. That seems too young. Oh, my God. The kids respond to that. They're like, that's my cousin or that's my little brother. And... You know, those of us who have raised kids were like 12 and a half. They're in Pop Warner. They can barely pack their backpack. It's junior high. All this stuff, you know. So those are my two issues with the legalization. Number one, and this is what I try to impart on students, the content, how much THC, the levels are huge, and the age of first use. Those are the two things. Those are big risk factors for how, as Connecticut, we should go forward and looking and measuring these things as we're rolling out our new legislation. Um, And I know you, you're not a prude. You're not uh, trying to uh, make everybody unhappy and going around and looking for smoking 
cigarettes and things like that. You're, uh, but you see it. You spend a lot of time looking at the uh, effects, negative effects of overuse of alcohol and drugs. Exactly. You know, when I came to the campus, I mean, they were looking for a, a public health approach. If you came on campus, okay, no alcohol use on campus. Well, you know, I'd have a big stupid sticker on my face if I felt that nobody drinks before they're 21. And I think from a campus's perspective, um, there's a chance to educate the population. You know, a lot of students already come to campus, and they already have a significant relationship with cannabis or with alcohol. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have to take a public health approach, understanding that the majority, if they use, will use responsibly. Not so much the college population. You've got this 18 to 25. The brain isn't fully developed. You have a lot of students that have never drank or binge drank before they come to campus. So when I see those students who have been in the wrong place at the wrong time, they drank for the first time, they mixed shots with this and that, they ended up in the hospital. That's a big education piece for me. My job is to see, okay, is this the first time? Where are you in the stages of your use? Um... And I think we're going to have to do the same with cannabis, you know, because I've been thinking, like, how as a university are we going to address this widespread cannabis use? And I've talked to a lot of colleagues, and I've been to some virtual conferences, and it's almost like getting back to basics. What I first did when I came here looking at binge drinking and alcohol, and a lot of those strategies were quite effective. Mm -hmm. Um, If I look at my own core data, we were very effective at reducing binge drinking. The number of hospitalizations is down. When I first came here in 2003, we could have 15 to 25 students transported. Maybe we get two or three, yeah. you know. so In a semester. It, correct. Right. So getting that information out, talking about the dangers of binge drinking, there's a lot of things that you can do to cut that down. We have to apply that same thing with cannabis use now. So it's, a lot of it's going to be education, because this survey that you talk references is 2017. That was way before there was any legal use of cannabis in Connecticut, which just happened July 1st. Um, so I assume you expect the numbers to go up and that uh, there will be a different relationship here on campus. It'll be, di- it'll be interesting. You know, around 2010, we started to see the decriminalization, um, and then it's gone up steadily, unfortunately. I think there will be a cap to that. Um, I don't know if the numbers will change a lot. Um, we were going to do it in March 2020, and then, of course, everything closed down, and then last March. So we're about a year behind in looking at this data. But it might be actually um, a good thing because we'll be – looking at this data um, in the midst of new legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, and You know, on campus, the rules state in writing, if you're a resident on campus, you aren't allowed to smoke marijuana, medical marijuana either. That's not allowed because we, as a university, receive federal funds. It's federal, not allowed federally, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> But no, but no administrator on campus is thinking, oh, there's no marijuana use here. There's no, as you said, drinking, underage drinking. Uh, if you're over 21 on campus, you're allowed to drink in your room, alcohol. Um, 
Sometimes they might invite somebody who's under 21 into the room. And really the enforcement, as um, I understand it, is uh, from talking to our police forces, you know, uh, okay, empty the bottles, empty the beer. We're not arresting you or anything like that. Uh, if you're wildly drunk or if you have to be transported to the hospital, that's a different thing. But uh, you, you, there's no... Um, Gestapo out there trying to end drinking or smoking a marijuana on campus. And I, I think that's the right approach from a public health standpoint as well. You know, if, I think when I first came here, people were probably questioning, well, people even call me like the drug czar, the alcohol. They didn't know what my <laughs> approach would be. It would be very ineffective to say no drinking on campus. If you're caught drinking, you're going to be kicked out of the residence halls. You're going to be kicked off campus. Where does that get us as a community, as a campus community? No place. Same thing with the with the cannabis. I mean, I certainly hear from police and RAs, you know, if they smell it in a room, they'll make a call. It goes to judicial. It can come to me. That's actually a really nice protective factor mm -hmm. for students because they can come to me and we can talk about this. Mm -hmm. Have you been smoking since you were 14, since you were 12? Is this the first time? Why are you choosing to do it now? Um, you know that this can affect your grades. If you're an athlete, we're going to be doing random testing. So there are all kinds of effective environmental strategies that universities can implement that can mitigate students flunking out, students getting into that 20% that are smoking daily. That's my job for this university. Mm -hmm. um, I want a healthy campus. I want students, you know, I want to mitigate that falling out uh, well, flunking out, right? Whatever, right, right. You know, you mentioned getting in trouble in the judicial, the academic judicial process. We have it; it's not a legal thing. It's like uh, we treat it. Uh, uh, you're a student, and how it affects might affect your standing here. When I was in college, if I got called into the judicial office, that would have been it. I would have been dry and straight for the rest of the uh, my time there. Man, I wouldn't want to get caught again. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that's another thing. Um, we talk about, like, what are some effective strategies that universities can use? And I have a really great working relationship with Charlie Alexander, who's our judicial officer. Mm -hmm. He started two programs, like the Jump Start program, and then there's another thing where, let's say, I get referred to Charlie for smoking cannabis, okay? Let's go to Sharon. Let's talk about how serious is this a problem. Then he checks back with students. Hey, how you doing? How's your GPA? And sometimes... I'll get a student who comes to me and, yes, they got caught smoking weed, but come to find out they have an alcoholic parent or they have this going on and that going on. They say, well, I said I'm never going to drink alcohol, but I'll smoke weed five times a day. So uh, there's a lot of work that can be done in conjunction with judicial. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I think Charlie does a, a good job of, of handling that. And the police as well. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't want to be writing out tickets for, you know, smelling marijuana right. in the hallways. So... They have a nice way, too. They can refer students to me. And it, it works out well. Um, yeah, but me being a teetotaler or uh, on a college campus, it just wouldn't work. It, no. it wouldn't be effective. It just would not be effective. What I want to see done is the things that my office did that were effective with the drinking, what are the lessons learned, and we can apply that right to marijuana. One example, when I first came here, you know, everybody thought, well, alcohol abuse, getting drunk on campus, it's a rite of passage. Mm -hmm. uh, we had to kind of rethink that. We don't want kids ending up in the hospital and flunking out. 
And we did a mailer home to like all parents, probably the first five years here, explaining what the underage drinking laws, what are the social host laws here, why does the university do this? I think we're going to have to do that with the marijuana as well um, so that parents understand. You may let your kids smoke weed with you since you were 15, 16. It may be okay in your house, but here at school, this is how we're managing this, and this is why. Mm -hmm. I think if parents understand that, they'll get it. Maybe, maybe not. Has parents changed, too, over the last 30, 40 years? Yeah, parents change. A lot of parents don't understand, though. They Mm. think that their kids are smoking the weed. You know, we called it grass in the 70s for a reason. It basically was. It had very very slight amounts of Mm -hmm. THC. Mm -hmm. Um, Nowadays, it does. And there's a lot of other things as well. Um, And even though I mentioned before, you know, the three stages of legalization, one is the campaigns, now we're into implementation, And then you're going to be looking at post-implementation. How are we doing with these laws? What do we have to correct? And I'll be looking at universities out in, let's say, Colorado, Washington, that have already had five, six years of legalization. Uh, And we know that there are fallouts. So that stage, geez, what do we call it? Something interesting, there's a name for it. Oh, it's called the post-implementation changes. And us in the field call it, a.k.a. the never-ending story. There were... Yeah, there will be changes made all the time, modifications made. Connecticut is looking at, I think they capped it at 15% would be the uh, THC level in the recreational, because you can get up to 35, even more. And one of the lessons learned, let's say, from Colorado, all of a sudden they had increase in uh, burns in uh, poison control centers. And the reason is that children were getting their parents' gummies, I mean, have you ever seen them? They look like exactly like any other gummy bear would mm-hmm. look like. Um, so, hence, you got to call the poison control center. They're bringing toddlers and infants to emergency rooms. They got into my edibles, and then when people do the dabs, you know, you melt it down and it's combustible. So, those are two of the post legal changes that we have to make some changes and some things. Yeah. I feel uh, out of date asking this, but I didn't know about this. You melt down the gummies and then smoke it that way? No, that's something different. That's just like the edibles and the wax. You Mm -hmm. can buy these. That's the thing. When you go into these stores, you can buy wax. You can do your own dabs. You've got the edibles. There's a lot of products out there. Now they have uh, THC-infused seltzer. So. Right. So you're going to see, and and here's the issue, you know, as concerned people on a college campus or anybody, is it the legalization that's the issue or is it the commercialization? Mm. And I would argue it's the commercialization that has to be mandated. Mm -hmm. You're not going to put up a dispensary four feet from an elementary school and advertise seltzers and gummies and that kind of thing. So Um, Even though it is legalized, there's still layers of policy to get through in Connecticut. And that will be from our municipal leaders. Mm -hmm. Um, What are the hours of operation? Where are they going to have these dispensaries? Uh, Checking IDs when you come in, tracking how much you're buying. I mean, those are the kinds of internal controls. So municipalities have a big, big say. Then you get down to local, you know, school boards. I mean, so there's going to be layers of policy to looking at the rollout of adult use, not recreation use, adult use cannabis use in Connecticut. 
Do you see, or one thing I think about is uh, kids starting early, young people starting early, getting into it, and then they have a drug problem for life, just like alcoholism starts often, starts young too. You, you bring up a very, very important point, and there are two really important items to look at um, when you're looking at somebody who's using cannabis. One is, what age did they start using? And you're right, Connecticut, it's a problem, 12.5%. Our data for, for Westcon, you know, we have 50%, almost 50% of people who come here to college, so they turn 18, have already used marijuana regularly. Mm. So we have 50% of our population who's already through that initiation phase. Um, and age of first use does predict current um, abusers. So when I run different analysis, I look and say, okay, what's associated? Who are these people in this 20% and what happens to them? These 20% who are smoking daily have been smoking for a long time. Early age of initiation is a predictor of a lot of problems, mm -hmm. using too much, running into problems, not finishing school, all kinds of things of a normal trajectory of, of life. So age of first use, biggest thing, biggest thing to look at. You've always been pretty optimistic when we've talked about this in the past. How are you feeling right now? I am. I'm an optimistic person by nature, but I think the other thing is when you work in this field and on this campus for so long, I've also had the privilege of seeing so many students that come through my office or collaboratively. You know, I work with the Counseling Center or the Women's Center, so, you know, all of us together, seeing students that really can clear that up and that's in their past where they can start a new sober life if that's what they have to do or if they want to cut down. They're successful at that. Or students say, I got to quit. Random testing is coming up, so I got to quit. Help me with that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I see a lot of positive mm -hmm. as well. The students that we can help, the students that, oh, God, I bombed my GPA this semester. Oh, now it's back up to 3.6. So I see the plus ends of that um, as well. And, and I like college-age students. Mm -hmm. um, I think they're at a crossroads in their life. It's an exciting time. But it is different being a college student these days than it was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. The pressures that they're under, uh, especially here at Western, how many of our students are working 25 hours a week or more. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of these pressures do. On the weekend, they want to unwind and, right. and do all these substances. But I feel like this university, um, I've always had support of top administration and then police and judicial and housing and health services. You know, we all have to kind of come together collectively to uh, identify students that are at risk. We have to have policies in place that don't hit students over the head, mm -hmm. but policies that can help them get out of this quagmire. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I see that that's part of my job, to create those, not create the policies, but yeah, I'll have some input into what our policies are like here, mm -hmm. um, how they're implemented, and then how can we get students back on the right track? Um, right. Yeah. Well, now I'm optimistic, too. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for talking with us today, Sharon. It was really interesting and uh, I think good for um, all our listeners to know, too. Thank you, Paul. Pleasure to be here. Did you want to mention um, how, you, how people can get in touch with you if they need to? 
That's a great idea. Yes. Um, it's the Choices office, and our office is in the Student Center, room 221. Um, excuse me, 211. Oh, my God, 211, Student Center. And you can stop in. You can email me at um, Lawler S. Uh, you can call. Um, yeah. You're accessible. Um, always accessible. Always accessible. And the student at the front desk won't turn people away or anything? No. That's an important part of prevention, by the way. You know, I go to homecoming. I'm going to these game nights. You have to be out there so people see who you are. They're not afraid of coming in your office. I also do a lot of things in my office, student workers, peer educators, so that if somebody does come in for an appointment, you don't really know that that student's coming in to do an assessment. They could be a peer educator. They could be an intern. So I, I try to have an open door policy for students. And it's important, you know, sure. it's important. Students you don't have to be afraid of going into Sharon Lawler's office. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Great, thank you. Thank you. Paul, you really should have been sober for that interview. <laughs> I was sober, but I was stunned. <laughs> okay, is that how that so, works? Yes, okay. different laws and everything. And, of course, all our listeners know we're just kidding. Of course. But I am calling Charlie Alexander. <laughs> <laughs> so that was interesting. And uh, Pete and I are going to give you uh, the top five events coming up in the next uh, few days. In no particular order. No particular order, yes. Uh, so the big one that's coming up real soon is registration for a spring semester. Um, you're going to want to go to... The website for this one because we don't have a lot of the nitty-gritty specific stuff and a lot of it is kind of floating too because everything depends on when you your particular eligibility for when you can start but um looks like your big thing is you want to go to banner web and log in and see what your start date is yeah and if you haven't thought about it at all yet talk to your student advisor figure out who that is show up make an appointment and that person will help you figure out what classes to sign up for in the next semester. And you want to get this done now because when they open up registration, the things you want go really fast. Yeah, it's like the Hunger Games now. Yeah, exactly. When I was here, it was literally it was a, a 150 years ago. It was all on paper. So mm -hmm. you had to bring your piece of paper and get the paper catalog, which I took. I had one in my desk from when I was a junior, I guess, and the student workers couldn't believe it. I feel like I'm on a run lately of talking about the old days here at WestCon. But, uh, yeah, you'd go through the paper catalog, find the courses, write them down, go to the advisor. You'd write the schedule out on paper, and then you'd go stand in line at the registrar, and they would bring up the one computer that was anywhere near there <laughs> and look it up and tell you if you could take the classes that you picked. And if you couldn't, you'd go back to the drawing board and take out the, <laughs> the catalog and find a new one. And it's a lot easier now, except that you have to, what is it, be online at midnight and everybody's I think it's, yeah, midnight, it's like yeah. Battle Royale. <laughs> Battle Royale is different than the Hunger Games. Would you like to describe how they're... <laughs> I've never actually Battle seen Royale Battle Royale, is. but I understand it to be, uh, yeah, just a very grown-up, horribly <laughs> violent version of... Well, I guess Hunger Games is a kid's version of Battle violent, Royale. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, okay. yeah, so, so go on, look up your registration stuff and uh, get that squared away so you don't miss your, the classes you want to take. You'll thank us later. And you can email us a thank you. Yeah, exactly. Okay, next up in our list uh, is Positiva T. 
TEA, November 5th, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. It's free. And it is at the IHHS, which is what, Paul? The Holistic Health Studies Center for Well-Being. One of our favorite places on campus. It's in Whitehall, room 114 on the first floor. Yeah. So, uh, you know, come down, have some tea, de-stress. Ooh, honey and lavender, vanilla mm-hmm. and chamomile. Or as my wife's grandmother always called it, chamomile. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, have some tea, have some chocolate. Oh, coloring and aromatherapy. This is good. It is good. I'm not much into coloring, but aromatherapy is, I'm totally into that. You smell stuff, I'll color. <laughs> and the tea we can both enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, so that's uh, this Friday the 5th from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. And then there's some, uh, looks like some other dates coming up too. Yeah, you'll learn them there from the director of IHH, whose first name is Crystal. Ironically. Ironically. She's been on the show. Yes. I forgot to ask her about that, though. Yeah, did you ever go get your Reiki? uh, I didn't. Me either. (laughs) We'll have to talk to her about that on Friday. Yes, yes. All right. Next up, uh, the start of the basketball season here at WCSU. Uh, Men's start their season on the 6th. That's this Saturday. Uh, The first game's at 5 o'clock against Plattsburgh State. Who we hate. (laughs) Uh, It's a doubleheader Saturday, and I believe there's a doubleheader Sunday as well. So come down to the O'Neill Center and uh, support the men's basketball team. When you say doubleheader, you mean the men play two games in a row? Uh, two games on one day? Yes. It, I, think it's, I think it's what they call a try. Oh, there's a oh, funny I name see. for it. it. Says, I think it's we yeah, play it's one team, and then that team plays another team, and then we play. That's what volleyball used to do. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. So there's Westcon against Plattsburgh at 5, and then Sarah Lawrence versus Westfield State at 7. because it's a tournament. Apologies. So I straightened Pete out here. Yeah, really. This is embarrassing. Yeah, Pete usually knows about the basketball games because he goes and videotapes them. Yeah, but it's been been a long season already. (laughs) (laughs) But, yes, basketball on Saturday and Sunday, so come down and and check that out and support the team. And the women will be playing sometime around then, too. Uh, Yeah, I think they are next week. I don't think they play at Uh home until next week. Good. So They're both going to be good this year, I hear. Yeah. And they will all be streamed live on uh, Little East TV. So check that out. You can get there from westconathletics.com as well. Yay. All right. Next up. It's a big uh, information session. If you are a student and want to apply for either the Fulbright or the Boren scholarship, or I guess you can apply for both of them, the Fulbright is the one that I've heard of, and we've had a lot of Fulbright scholars here. Uh, You know, a lot of the Ivy League schools and little Ivies are very stuck up and... uh, put their noses in the air because they have Fulbright scholars. But you know what? At Westcom, we have Fulbright scholars, but that, too. But that's like a real thing. That it is. It's like kind of at the at the risk of sounding dismissive. Like that that's surprising that we have as many as we do, right? It's a big mm-hmm. deal. Yep. And we should continue that. Yes. We have our uh, professors who have been Fulbright scholars help the students who are interested apply and figure it out and – uh, you know, we have smart students here, as all our listeners know, and they can be Fulbright. You can be a Fulbright scholar. 
Pete and I could have been Fulbright scholars too if we could just had known how to spell Fulbright. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah. Uh, the Boren Scholarship, I have not heard of, but you can apply for that too, and I'm sure it's very good. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> They're say, all at the same session, yeah. November 10th, 2 to 3 p.m. And it's virtual. And it's virtual, which is very cool. Yep. And uh, last but not least is bad at sign dollar sign dollar sign bingo, which we don't have a current bingo playing co-host. None of our That's three right. are, are, are excited to play bingo, but we'll see if we can wrangle one of them to uh, go to this bingo on November 10th at 8 o'clock at the Westside Campus Center. I assume it's in the ballroom. It doesn't say specifically, but that's you. Oh, I apologize. Westside Cafe. Oh. So go have some food. Go play some bingo. And uh, they get some real prizes at those things. Yes. They give away, like, video game systems and TVs and headphones <laughs> and all kinds of crazy stuff. So It is crazy. Yeah, one of our old student workers used to go and win, like, a couple times a semester. Oh my gosh. Chantel never did. No, our former co-host, she went every week and thought every week she was going to win, and she never did. And uh, so if you're a co-host here, you will never win either. <laughs> the curse. But it is fun, apparently. Yeah. So bingo, November 10th, 8 o'clock p.m. Are we not allowed to say what uh, at sign, dollar sign, dollar sign stands for? Is that Does that stand we... for something, Paul? I thought I that was know, just a word. It? I thought you were oh. going to uh, say it. Yeah. Well, I'm just reading what's there. <laughs> We're parents. <laughs> we don't go there. We self-censor now. Yes. Yeah. So that's, I mean, there's a, there's a ton of stuff going on. WCSU.edu slash wow. Go on, check it out. See what's what. You can also find all that stuff in the MyWCSU app. Um, there's a lot of music stuff coming yes, up. Yes. Lots of concert, percussion ensemble, wind ensemble. Um, Pete used to play the tuba. I did. I have mm -hmm. it in a while. Hmm. But uh, Tuba players often, they fall off, right? If they... Once they, if they don't have a gig or something, they put it in the closet yeah. or wherever. And uh, yeah, my thing, yeah, my thing was once I stopped kind of having and getting opportunities to play, I just kind of put it down. And then I got married and I had kids, and then my valves fell off the front of my tuba because the weld snapped, and I just never got it fixed. And um, <laughs> that'll stop. Yeah, you. it's not, and I'm sure there are people who out there who would disagree with me, but it's not a, it's not a terribly fun instrument to play solo like you play guitar you, you can just you can play songs right. off the radio and you can sing and you can do it it's kind of a it's just kind of you and your tuba yeah you don't <laughs> see concerts with the three tubas tubits tubists. tubists yeah so uh yeah i did but i haven't played in in quite a while we got to get you back yeah. there got to get those valves welded and have you on the podcast yeah. My dad uh, plays accordion, and he hasn't in a very long time. And I think I'm going to just go over there and take it over. Oh, so can, that'd be like, fun too. Accordion. That's a little more. That's a little more of a solo instrument like that. Yeah. So. Hmm. All right. If there's anybody left listening, let's uh, <laughs> tell them how they can <laughs> email us at podcasts at wcsu.edu. You can find us on social media. And. Uh, yeah, and sign up to hear the podcast every week so you don't forget. Yeah, subscribe. You can leave us a, a review anywhere you get your podcast. Yeah. Wherever you found this one. We're right here in the basement of Whitehall recording this thing. Come on down. Be a part of the show. Yeah. All right, so that's it for this week. 
For At WCSU, I'm Paul Steinmetz. That's Pete Puccio. True story. Yeah, and we'll see you next week. At WCSU is a production of WCSU Media, engineered by Peter Puccio and produced by Scott Volpe. Listen and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at WCSU Media and on the university's Facebook and Twitter pages. And feel free to reach out to us by email at podcasts at wcsu.edu. Thanks for listening.